You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone, Harsha here and welcome to another episode of Changing Reality. We're so, so excited to have you guys with us here with a very special guest. I can't spoil it much for you guys, so stay tuned to find out more. And for all of you, this is the first time you're tuning into Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. If you don't know already, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. And we'll be hanging out and interviewing with social change makers, business owners, um, inspiring individuals from musicians, top executives, artists, and anyone and everyone that you can think of to hear the inspiring stories of how they are changing the world around them through their own ways. And hopefully, by listening to these stories, we'll be able to figure out how we can apply the lessons that they learn to create the world that we want for ourselves, to create the careers we want, to create the change we want, and basically live lives that are meaningful to us. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of others with those around them. And I'm just super passionate about learning how people are changing the world in their own capacity so that as we learn these lessons, we can spread it and create a global movement or global flow of experiences that will help you and I connect to each other as well. And just to show you how passionate I am about the power of stories and how amazed I am at the work or the impact that stories can have, I actually personally founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with global organizations across the world, including ministries of education in Malaysia, um, NGOs and um, other large institutions to provide an alternative education platform for any student out there who wants to change their own work with students from elementary to high school through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, projects, and much more to help them discover their passion, learn about the world around them and about themselves, and start their own careers while they are still in school. So to date, we've managed to work with over 15,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the border or kind of like the essence of what makes this possible are stories, are hearing the inspirational stories um, of people out there who are um, successful, but at the same time are still um, willing to share their experiences with us. And it's that that has enabled us to grow so much and has even enabled us to recently complete a conference for over 50,000 students fully run by Gen Zs under the age of 25 that connected global participants and global speakers who are young change makers as well. And hopefully, if you guys enjoy the power of stories, if you guys enjoy about it, do drop it in the show chat below. If you've got anything that you want to talk about, any topics that you want to know more about, let us know as well. And we'll see what we can do about that. So today's speaker is someone very, very interesting, as I mentioned before. So not only is he someone who spent some time um, at the Wharton School on campus here at the University of Pennsylvania, but our speaker is also someone who helps create, scale, and lead AI software companies at Foundry. So Foundry.ai's technology fund slash studio, that creates AI software companies in partnership with large enterprises. 
An amazing speaker focuses um, on the areas of strategy, growth, business development, operation, client services, and much more. And he's worked in a multitude of capacities as a consultant, a client, a vendor, at both the startup stages and with Fortune 500 companies. And as someone who does all of these amazing things, I thought it would be um, an interesting uh, story to hear of how exactly someone ends up in this industry. What are the experiences that make them able to work or scale companies at this amazing level? And hopefully by hearing his story, all of you would be inspired to see how you can step into this industry as well. So without further ado, let's bring on our speaker for today, the Chief Operations Officer of one of the startups at Foundry.ai, um, Vain Lamar. Hey, Harsha, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Of course, I'm happy to, looking forward to it. Yep, so is it a good day so far? Have we interrupted you in the middle of bad weather or? <laughs> no, so far so good. I'm actually out here in San Francisco at the moment, so a little different scene than DC, um, but Weather's nice. I'm looking forward to being out on the West Coast again. All right. Thank you so much. And as I mentioned earlier, as a spoiler, you were actually once here in Philly with us. You were at the Wharton School and all of that. And um, this show is done by WQHS Radio, which is Penn student-run organization. Mm -hmm. And I feel sometimes as a student here, it's hard to imagine how our lives would be like any the wiser or like as we like leave college, because here we've, a lot of us are rather lost and not sure like what we're going to do next in a way. So were you that kind of college student when you were here as well? Or were you the kind of student who had it all figured out like coming into Wharton? Uh, no, definitely uh, the former. So uh, yeah, you know, I came into Penn um, actually in the dual degree program. So I was part of the life sciences and management program at Penn. Um, so, you know, I'm from Tampa, Florida, um, grew up there. Uh, both my parents are doctors, was always envisioning um, going into college pre-med, becoming a doctor and kind of going down that path. Uh, I figured this program was actually a good fit between, you know, kind of the business, uh, the medicine side as well as the business side of things. And so I joined Penn expecting to be a doctor, um, kind of going in and thinking that would be the path. Um, but, you know, as you can now see, that was not what eventually happened, um, was very much interested, uh, started learning a little bit more about the business world, you know, um, and very much got, kind of got sucked into that side uh, learning more about finance and marketing and management and things like that, which, you know, really stood out in my mind. So I actually ended up pursuing the degree in Wharton specifically, um, and really kind of the, the science side of things never really, uh, you know, intrigued me or interested in me as much um, after that. Okay, so glad to know. I mean, like, it's hard to be at Penn, I feel, and not get sucked into the business side of things and not to at least, like, experience that a little bit. So, like, totally understand. How, like, but, like, knowing, like, coming in with one plan and kind of, like, leaving with another, what do you think, like, was that real turning point for you when you realized that, oh, my gosh, like, I have to do something different than my like what I originally thought. I want to be in business. I want to do something a little bit different than what I thought I would like, in a sense. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it really comes down to, in my mind, at least for me, it was, you know, taking all these different classes that you've never really had exposure to in high school. Um, you know, I think in high school, curriculum's pretty universal uh, across the board and across the world uh, in terms of like, you know, math, science, English, history, things like that. Um, but when you go to school and then you start learning things about, you know, uh, whether it's accounting or, you know, management, 
um, you know, brand marketing, just things like that, that are just not subjects that were taught in high school. And you start to see yourself naturally gravitating towards those, which is what happened with me. Um, you know, I ended up becoming a finance and marketing concentration at Wharton. And, you know, I was always good at math. I was always interested in math and applying it to the financial domain was particularly kind of interesting. Uh, and then not to mention on the marketing side, just like learning about brands, businesses, how companies grow. It was just something you never really had exposure to previously. Um, but now, you know, now I did. And it was just, I was naturally more interested in it. And, you know, obviously Penn and college just gives you that opportunity to to take advantage of that sort of, uh, those sorts of um, classes and curriculum and those lessons. All right, and just because I know a lot of people who want to be doctors and like don't want to like continue that path down the line, how did you go back and like talk to your parents about this or talk to your family and basically be like, hey, I've, I've gone to college, I've discovered that I would like something else and this is not really my interest. Like, what was that conversation like? Were they the totally receptive kind or were they the a little bit hesitant kind in a sense? I think parents are always, you know, hopeful that their children go down this kind of more stable and structured path, right? The and you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, kind of these tried and true career paths um, that you know, folks. It's just something that's less risk averse, um, you know, for folks that are you know, you know, just kind of going down that um, you know, sort of conventional. Uh, it's conventional wisdom at the end of the day. Um, but my parents are great. I mean, you know, my parents are very supportive of everything that I've been doing. And, you know, when I told them, like, look, I don't think medicine is really for me. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the business side of the world, whether that's, you know, consulting or technology or finance or whatever, you know, whatever it was. Um, and look, there's a reason I'm here at the Wharton School. Uh, I think they kind of got the idea and were very, and they were very supportive um, and said, look, you know, it's your, your choice, your decisions, you know, we support you in anything that you want to do. So, you know, frankly, it was a pretty easy conversation to have. Okay, very cool. And how, and moving out of Wharton in a sense, knowing that, okay, business world, here I come. What was the first thing that you tried? What was the first thing that you wanted to get into in a sense? I know you did an internship, you were an analyst, if I'm not mistaken, at uh, one of the uh, venture capitalist firms, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So like, how did you know that, okay, what direction do I take? Because business is such a huge place to, to even think about in a sense. So what set kind of like your direction? So my path was kind of interesting um, in that you're right, like business is so broad, like you can kind of boil a lot of things down to just business, quote unquote. Um, when I, so I, my first internship, I guess my first real paying job, frankly, um, was with a, a gentleman down in Tampa who owned a real estate private equity firm. Um, and that's just kind of, you know, run of the mill, you know, Wharton School, you know, business, just that's that's what a lot of folks do, um, you know, go into something finance related, whether it's banking, private equity, hedge funds, this, that, or the other. And, you know, it was just something that I thought, look, a lot of folks are talking about it. Let's try it out and see if I like it. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be connected with this guy and, you know, was able to get an internship there for the summer and try it out. Um, you know, I think that my approach generally has always been you know, because I have so many, like a myriad of interests. So it's, what do I, you know, what, it's not necessarily like, what do I like doing? Because I like so many different things, but it was really just around this idea of like, what do I dislike doing? And really the only way of identifying that was to try to, you know, try different things. And so, you know, there was an internship in uh, real estate, private equity. There was an internship in investment banking. There was an internship at a pharmaceutical company. Like I just had to try these different experiences to see, 
you know, what I liked and what I didn't, but more importantly, what I didn't like. And, you know, just start to hone in in that way in terms of, you know, this aspect of the job I really enjoyed, this aspect of the job I didn't. And it just helped me tailor more and more towards, you know, what I think is my eventual career path, um, which again, it continues to be, you know, very flexible and changes and it's very dynamic. Um, but it's just allowed me to get more and more refined in terms of like, and I know what I, you know, definitely don't like doing and I continue to kind of optimize on what I enjoy doing essentially. Okay. And I see that from the, like actually going and having the internships, trying it out, I think is definitely the best way to learn because you don't know until you're actually there, right? No way. Exactly. Yeah. And you eventually started going into more of the consulting arena. So you started at, if I'm not mistaken, a business consultant at um, APT and eventually you rose all the way up to becoming a principal there, which is amazing. So how did you, okay, figure out that this is where you were going to start. And once you were there, what do you think set you apart from like everyone else coming into this new role? Because you managed to grow really fast in a really short time. So what enabled you to do that? So to your first question, just in terms of kind of how did I go about making that decision to join APT? Um, you know, this was coming in, this was senior year. It was kind of going through the, uh, you know, the on-campus recruiting process at that time. And I just finished an internship in banking and, you know, I did receive an offer to join that company. But again, kind of that same sort of approach, which is, you know, I enjoyed my internship, um, but I was just still curious about other sort of stuff. I wanted to see what else was out there. And, you know, in Wharton, it's oftentimes, you know, banking or consulting. Um, and I know I never really had that consulting experience. And what, you know, intrigued me about APT specifically was that it was, you know, it had a very strong consulting component to it. There was a lot of, you know, strategy consulting engagements, but at the end of the day, it was also a software firm. So it had this like very good technology background. So in my mind, it was kind of the best of the both worlds um, where you're, you know, you're working at, you know, a very uh, forward thinking tech company, but also doing a lot of strategy consulting engagements and, and using the software to do so. And so it seemed like the best fit for me because it was two areas that I didn't really have that much exposure to, and but I had interest in doing it. And, you know, really at the end of the day, what made me make that decision, you know, going through the interview process and getting the offer um, and trying to debate, should I stay in New York and do finance or should I, you know, move to San Francisco and try out this consulting tech thing um, was location. <laughs> I, uh, I think it, a lot of folks go to New York after Penn, which is great. I mean, New York's a great city, and I've lived there for a few years um, after graduating. But for me, I really wanted to try something a little different, you know, just kind of be a rebel, if you will. Um, so move out straight to San Francisco and try to, you know, try the tech consulting thing with APT. So it was it was interest in that uh, interest in that business, but also the uh, the location um, was very interesting to me, and, and you know, I'm very happy I made that decision. So location, location, location proves true in a sense. All right. And like now you're in this, and I can imagine why this is like the place for like, now that you're in AI, you were then thinking of this software company because this is like San Francisco is literally the heart of that whole industry. So it makes complete sense. But as someone like out of college, moving into a new job and kind of like at the same time, moving to a completely new city, how was that for you, like personally? Like, was it all that you expected right off the bat, or did it take time to kind of like adapt into a completely new arena? No, definitely, definitely the latter. Um, <laughs> I mean, living so one just living in San Francisco is a total different change than Philadelphia or New York or Tampa. You know, places I've lived in before. Um, 
just in the sense that there was a very tech, it is a very tech forward city. Um, and it's, you know, it's one that is just very unique in and of itself. I mean, it's a peninsula, it's got different weather, it's got a whole different scene and culture than the East Coast where I'm essentially from. So that was, I mean, that was, you know, different and unexpected in some senses. Uh, the other piece of it too is just, there's just so much you don't, there's just so much you can, you know, you don't know when you're in school that you can really only learn uh, through, you know, actual work experience. And internships are really great to do that, as we were saying. But, you know, when you're in a full-time job, there's no more, you know, you don't have an end date necessarily uh, in, the, in the sense that, you know, your internship's 10 weeks long or 12 weeks long, you go back to school, you make a decision. Here, it's really kind of like the world is your oyster. There is no, you know, there's no more summer break. There's no more Christmas break necessarily. And so you start to get involved in, you know, your full-time role. And it's just going to be a lot of different things that you might not have expected, whether it's kind of like hard skills, you know, and an APT for me, that was something like learning SQL, which I just, you know, was not uh, expecting to do. Um, but of course, it was a very valuable thing to learn or just soft skills, um, you know, really just like being a professional, um, whether that's, you know, working with teams, you know, and that's peers, but as well as managers and their, you know, managers, managers and things like that. It's just not a lot of exposure you get to because, you know, here, when you're in an, you know, in your first full-time job, you know, the stakes are a little higher, you know, you're working with clients, you're actually, um, you know, selling, you know, million dollar plus deals and things like that, and, and are driving, you know, big revenue impacts for clients and ideally adding a lot of value in, in doing so. So you really just, you know, there's a lot of different pieces that, you know, the stakes are higher and there's just, it's a, it's like the soft touches, if you will, um, you know, again, working with people, um, picking up skills, working with clients, like it's just something that it's hard to do when you're in college and it's stuff that you never really, really think of um, because you can really only do it once you're in your full-time role. And for you, what was the most unexpected thing that you learned? Like that you and there could, it could be like a hard skill which you could learn something and sit in a course, or it could have been like something that you picked up as a soft skill, but what was the most like unexpected that you didn't think that that was even a factor at all in a sense? I think the most, so I think with a lot of folks at a pen, you'll go into something, a lot of folks choose to go into something client related where you're, you know, work, it's professional services. So you're working with clients. So think of consulting, think of banking, um, think of a lot of, you know, software as a service type work. And that client relationship and interpersonal skills with clients was something that I just frankly never really thought of in college. You know, it was very much like a hard skill, like, can I learn how to do, you know, a DCF model correctly? Or, you know, can I put together this PowerPoint and present this analysis? Um, but there's a lot of like hard skills when it comes to uh, doing work for clients, but there's a lot of soft skills. And I think, you know, a lot of times what gets overshadowed or, or rather what gets forgotten in this process is that, you know, at the end of the day, you're working with people um, and people, you know, have their own sets of, you know, needs, wants, desires, you know, questions, things like that. And so, you know, focusing in on the soft skills and, you know, learning more about your clients, what makes them tick, what, you know, where, what are they looking for? Are they trying to get promoted? Are they, uh, you know, just doing this because their boss said to do it, whatever it might be, and trying to get through that process in, as a way to, you know, kind of become a better consultant or become a better banker, or become a better professional, whatever it is. Um, that was something that, again, it was it was really valuable for me to learn at APT um, because it's something I still carry with me, um, you know, here at my time at Foundry as well as other places I've been because that is something unique and it's something that was just unexpected to me. I, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, the, that soft skill, specifically client relations, 
um, when I was in college as, as a way to really kind of make things, you know, drive deals and drive revenue, add value and, you know, work with different sorts of companies. No, I completely see where you're coming from because I feel like many times we're focused on like, what do I need to know to excel? Like, like, like as you mentioned, the hard skills, the things that like we can learn in the classroom, but things like managing clients, I feel is something that even today is something like extremely hard to actually learn unless you are actually managing a client, thinking about the day and night and kind of like figuring out how you can work on their project and all of that. So what was like, could you share like maybe one story or like one experience where you worked with the client and you realized that, oh my gosh, like, like I've unlocked the secret of managing clients. So like that you've actually felt like that you were learning this skill on the ground, working with this client. Well, what was your biggest lesson from a client I'd say? Well, I don't know if I've unlocked the secret yet. <laughs> ever ending, um, never ending process really. And all clients are different and all different, you know, all situations are slightly different, but you know, I had a lot of clients at APT in the Phoenix area. So I went to Phoenix quite a bit from San Francisco and worked with them. And, you know, it was really interesting because those became some of some of APT's largest accounts, but also, you know, some of the ones that I helped directly influence and grow. And so I was very personally attached to them in some respects. And there was a lot of things, you know, we were there for multiple days on end doing you know, software trainings, um, readouts with executives, I'm um, just going through all sorts of different analysis. Um, but the best thing, what I always recommend doing and what I always try to do with clients, uh, you know, after a long work day is just catch up socially, you know, whether that's, you know, a drink at happy hour, a dinner, um, just having a coffee chat in the middle of the day, just learning more about, you know, again, what what's on their minds. Do they have vacations? How are their kids doing? Um, you know, what are they thinking about, you know, the, their, you know, their company, their role, their position, um, you know, are they looking to leave? Are they looking to transfer? Are they looking to, you know, get promoted? Wh whatever it might be. Um, and all of that stuff usually comes out in pretty informal conversations. And I think the best way to get that out of folks, in, in so to speak, is to share more about yourself as well. Um, so, you know, I think just naturally talking a bit about, you know, what your goals are um, and what you're hoping to do with your career um, or where you went to, you know, where you went over the weekend or what restaurants, you, whatever it might be, um, having those personal connections with folks at the end of the day, it made it that much easier, frankly, when you're interacting with them to say, you know, this is not just, you know, a voice on the phone or a face on the screen. This is a human, a person that you're, you know, actually working with. And, you know, at the, like APT, for instance, its goal was to sell software. And, you know, frankly, people like buying software from people they like speaking with. Um, so, you know, it could be the best software in the world, um, but if the, uh, if the folks didn't really like working with you or, you know, you just, it just felt very robotic or, you know, unpersonal, impersonal, excuse me, um, I don't think it would be as successful as, you know, what we were able to achieve just by, you know, having a more genuine approach and kind of, you know, I, talking with folks and just getting them on the same speed and same wavelength and, you know, making it clear that, you know, we're here to help, but we're also here to just, you know, learn more about you and, you know, honestly just, you know, be very genuine in that uh, conversations. So kind of like giving first in that whole genuine vulnerability, sharing like about yourself and then that kind of like oh, gets them to open up and builds that connection. All right, I think it's a pretty good cheat code that you've given us, especially for this really hard thing to do, which is then like building relationships. So thank you. And sure. like, again, in your role, like with APT, I think APT was eventually acquired and um, which just shows the success of the company in a sense. And as you, as someone, as I mentioned, like group, like, like decently, like 
amazingly, I'd say, like in that company. What do you think was the thing different about you that enabled you to grow, that enabled you to be so effective at your role? So I would say it's two things, one of which is the environment that you're in. And I think APT had a really strong culture and a really strong environment in the sense that they hired people in there that wanted to be there um, that and also wanted to grow with the firm and kind of built a structure where if you were succeeding and doing well and you um, want to take on more responsibility and you know they will let you take on more responsibility and you know it's really an environment that they want people to grow and become you know a business consultant to a manager to a principal to a VP you know et cetera throughout the hierarchy um, they really want people to to learn and develop so it was a lot of you know the the firm itself was great at investing in its employees and then building just a really great culture of doing so so I think that that was really valuable that's kind of the basis I mean I think that's a very important piece of it um, that's unrelated to me specifically. It's just, you know, good good words for the firm. But to, you know, the, this piece on my end, you know, frankly, it just comes down to, I, I personally think it just comes down to hard work. Um, you know, it is, and I think a lot of folks uh, at Penn and, you know, other listeners and things like that are definitely hard workers, type A personalities, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think it's just really continuing to do that and just being eager to learn. Um, you know, I think, you know, the way I like to look at it was I, you know, a lot of times at least, maybe not every day, but most days I was the first person in the office and the last person to leave. And particularly when you're new in your career, that can be very valuable. Um, it's not a matter of like, there's this whole idea of like, oh, this is FaceTime or is this not FaceTime? It, it's not so much that in my mind as it is like, how committed are you to learning and just absorbing everything that you can um, from whomever it might be, whether it's peers, um, junior associates, you know, senior managers, whomever it might be uh, across the board. And so I think in that way, uh, just being able to, you know, learn from folks and kind of, sh you know, continuously gathering knowledge and just being there and being dedicated um, and taking on any sort of assignments that are there, you know, you want people at the end of the day to say, you know, we need to staff someone else on this next project. I'm looking for a venue, you know, or whomever it might be. Uh, we need. I think you want to be that person at the end of the day that can be, um, you know, counted on and reliable. And uh, so, my advice for folks is, you know, just work really hard, get up early, stay late, take on as much as you can, um, because you don't really know where that'll lead you. But it's kind of the best foot forward in any sort of new job. Okay, very very good advice. And um, again, did amazingly well. Stepping out of it in a sense, and the next thing you did with, if I'm not mistaken, was with night with was with Zodiac. So Zodiac is a predictive uh, analytics uh, platform uh, with a focus on customer centricity, and um, it was I think the idea was that it could accurately predict the purchasing behavior and lifetime value of individual customers and customer segments. Yeah, and um, it was actually I think one of the uh, co-founders was actually. A professor here at Wharton, and Professor Peter Fader, who we actually had on the show a while ago. So, how did you even find out about Zodiac, and how did you become part of the team? Was it something that was just happened by chance, or was there a long-term strategy that you had in place, in a sense, to figure it to become part of the team? What What was actually happening? I would say a little bit of both, <laughs> in the sense that um, so in I think it was around 2015, but. Uh, one of the other co-founders uh, and the CEO of Zodiac, Artem Marichin, he was a classmate of mine at Penn. So he was in the LSM program um, with me. And 
around in 2015, I would say he reached out because I think he would, you know, he was in uh, finance at the time he was doing investing and he was uh, essentially in this process of, you know, creating this company, creating Zodiac and wanted to learn more about my experience in SaaS and analytics SaaS specifically. Um, Cause I was one of the few folks, frankly, who, you know, went and graduated from uh, Wharton and went into, you know, software as a service and was kind of doing these things with the types of clients that Zodiac was looking to sell to, you know, retailers, restaurants, e-commerce firms, things like that. And so Artem and I chatted and I just gave him my perspective on it. You know, what I liked about, you know, working in SaaS, you know, how it worked at APT, um, you know, how clients were thinking about lifetime value and customer analytics and customer centricity. And I remember leaving that conversation and thinking, you know, if I ever wanted to leave APT and join a startup, like a true startup in the sense, um, that would be my first call. And so two years later, uh, when I did want to leave APT, uh, you know, I pinged Artem and said, look, I'm, you know, thinking about leaving, uh, was wondering how things are going at Zodiac and, you know, would love to just have a conversation about it. And, you know, by happen chance, he was in San Francisco. We got a drink, we caught up, we talked about it. Um, and that was officially the start of my interview process with them, um, where we were uh, essentially going through, you know, what I could, uh, you know, what would be a good role and fit for me at Zodiac, where they were, what were they trying to achieve, things like that. Um, so it was a little, you know, it was a little serendipitous in the sense that, you know, Artem gave me this call and was talking about it, you know, in 2015. But again, in the back of my head, I was always thinking this would be a good place to go, you know, should I choose to leave APT in the future? So all worked out well at the end of the day. Okay, very cool. And you brought up this point about like this whole, if you were to join a startup question in a sense. And I feel like um, another thing that happens to a lot of uh, people at Penis, there is always this kind of like feeling of like, how would working in a startup be? Because we just have like a, like a quite decently amazing like entrepreneurship kind of like, um, or looking at the other side if you're in VC or you're learning that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So like from your point of view, how was working in a startup? Was it the complete opposite of working in a larger, more established company? Was it what you expected it or like what caught you off guard and like completely was different from what you thought it would be? It it was expected in the sense that everything was unexpected, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, it was a it's a very it's a very interesting and uh, unique experience I think people can have because it's very chaotic. There's no structure. It's a lot of ambiguity and it's a lot of just, you know, problem solving, whether that is, you know, hard problem solving, you know, coding, figuring out um, some sort of analysis, this, that, or the other, or just like soft problem solving when it comes to like, you know, how should we go to market? You know, who do we need to hire? Um, you know, how do we actually convert this client? You know, how do we position the product? Things like that. I mean, it, it really is kind of the, in my view, the best place to learn quote unquote business and at least at a very broad view. So I think, you know, in a lot of places you can learn a breadth of experience. Um, a lot of places you can have a depth of experience. I think in a startup you get both because particularly like an early stage one um, because there's just so much to do. There's so much to do and so many different uh, and so few people to do it. And frankly, you just learn and absorb a lot from everybody around you. So, you know, at Zodiac, for instance, I learned a ton from Artem and Pete and Dan, one of the other co-founders at uh, Zodiac, as well as with the engineering team and the data science team and the marketing team, you know, the different folks that we worked with. And whereas, you know, at APT, you learned a lot from the folks around you. Um, but it was, I was pretty isolated in like the consulting or client services uh, end of APT. But there wasn't as much sort of 
uh, exposure, if you will, uh, or natural exposure rather, um, to like, you know, marketing, engineering, um, data science, data analysis, things like that. So, you know, it, it in that startup realm, you're just exposed to so much. It's it can be very chaotic. Um, if every day is a little different, um, or every day is very different, rather. Um, but you just learn a lot. You really, you know, you, you kind of have to because it is sink or swim in the most in kind of the purest sense. You know, if you don't absorb it and kind of start to execute on it, things start to go awry pretty quickly. Yeah, but you have quite a well, you had quite a challenging role at Zodiac as well, um, VP of strategy and operations, which is two things which I think um, again on strategy side it's something that you have to pivot quite frequently in the startup space, and on operation side there's always something that can be done better, something that needs to be worked on. So a lot of like as you mentioned chaos and a lot of changes that you need to kind of like focus on on a day to day basis. So for you, in a sense, what was your biggest lesson in working on this startup space that you think like helped you throughout your career after that as well? Biggest lesson? I mean, I need to think about it for a second. Well, so there's kind of two things. One is that it relates back to what and it relates. The first one, it relates back to what I just said, which is just remain flexible. Um, your ideas are not always going to be right, you know, and you have to be flexible and iterate as needed. And a startup like Zodiac, I mean, we could change our corporate strategy after a five-minute discussion. It was, you know, it, it, that's the that's the benefit of a startup. It, it's very nimble, and you don't require a lot of decision makers to make a really pivotal pivotal decision about the company. Um, and that's, you know, kind of one thing that I've wanted to always uh, encourage folks to do is, you know, you can you can kind of have like analysis paralysis and go into something with an idea uh, and, and just spend a lot of time before making the decision, but you know, just stay flexible because, and stay flexible and also just make the decision, you know, don't be indecisive. Um, it's, you know, it's, you could either be right or you could be wrong, but, you know, indecision just, you know, indecision is kind of the root, root of all evils in some senses. Um, so that would be one thing I would say uh, was really good, you know, be decisive and remain flexible with those decisions. Um, the second thing that was really interesting is that you just, you just start to learn how to manage people better. Um, and, and it's different types of people. So, you know, at APT, there was a lot of folks I was working with um, who are, you know, junior consultants, and you get a pretty good sense of how to manage junior consultants um, because the work streams are pretty similar. You've done it before, um, and you kind of have an idea of people's personalities, and, uh, it, you know, it's something that can become pretty natural over time. Um, what I didn't know uh, before joining Zodiac, for instance, was, well, how do you manage data scientists or software engineers or salespeople or marketing people or you know things like that where really the functional areas are very different from you know client services or you know strategy consulting or anything like that that i was used to um so just being just learning the nuances on you know how does an engineer think versus how does the data scientist think and, and not trying to put people in boxes or label people because everyone is a little different but there's very sim there are commonalities and similarities amongst functional groups and that's helped me here at foundry and at uh, and at Actify specifically just in the sense of you know you get an idea of you know engineers think very differently for instance than uh, you know someone on the client services side um, and just being able to understand how those interactions and say, you know, there isn't, there is a reason why, you know, one person's thinking this way, one person's thinking another, because at the end of the day, you need to have a cohesive team um, that is really excited about what they're doing. And, you know, folks respond to different sorts of, um, uh, folks respond to different sorts of incentives. Uh, engineers might be a little different. 
consultants might be a little different, salespeople, marketing people. Um, so that was another thing, just kind of get through that Zodiac experience that's really you know, helped me as I start thinking about you know, all the different types of folks that I've been working with and managing um, that are not you know, within the same functional area, so to speak. Okay. And I think that's a very, very good point because I'm a big subscriber though to the fact that, or I wouldn't say I'm a big subscriber. One of the things that I've seen personally is based on even the current project that I have and the role that I have, my thinking changes. So I look at different points of views based on like whatever it is that I'm focusing on. And when I work in the team, I see that everyone comes from kind of like the point of view of the aspect of the work that they do. It kind of like seeing how to piece all of that's what makes a project successful. It's just that sometimes if you don't see it from someone else's point of view or the role that they're in, then it kind of like creates that friction. And I would say that managing that would you guys would have been extremely successful like zodiac was an extremely amazing uh, startup that was even acquired by nike which is i think the highest compliment that you can like receive for a startup being acquired by such a big company in a sense and you went on as the kind of like hit, hitting this integration between zodiac and nike and you had that role for a while how was that experience now coming like being on the complete flip side of things like now, like earlier, you're in the startup space, five minute conversations can change major things. And then now you're in Nike, which is this huge organization, which if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure they would require a lot more discussion before implementing such changes and all of that. So like, how was that, that, that kind of like pivot in your own mindset that you had to go through in a way? Yeah, it was, I mean, it is a very big difference. <laughs> um, and it, it was, I mean, it was interesting because, you know, I think that, large companies like nike for instance there's you know there is inherently a bureaucracy within them um and it does take you know it's not a five minute conversation to change corporate strategy it's you know months if not years to do so and and a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different players particularly at nike which is a very matrix organization so there's like very you know dotted line reporting straight line reporting it can get very confusing in terms of like who's actually responsible for what um it, so for me personally, it was just something to learn, you know, something that you had to like set your expectations essentially. Whereas, you know, I talked with, you know, my team at, uh, at Zod you know, the Zodiac team that went on to Nike and we just had to like, we just had to set our expectations. You know, this is something that's not, you know, we, if we have to get approval of the privacy team, the security team, the legal team, you know, X, Y, and Z, the other teams to actually do something uh, you know, it's going to take some time. It's not something we can implement in, you know, a day like we used to. And so resetting our expectations was something important. But I also think the other thing is resetting your expectations, but knowing there's a reason for all this so-called red tape, let's call it. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of folks can get bogged down in the corporate bureaucracy and just, and just kind of say, this, just get flustered. You know, this is, this is nonsense. This is taking too long, whatever it might be. And I think that's true of, uh, of a lot of organizations for sure. At least at Nike, there was a reason for a lot of the red tape and bureaucracy because um, decisions are very important. You know, one really good thing about a big company, so to speak, is you can spend a lot of time on an analysis or a decision and go through all the right sorts of processes. And, you know, again, it's something that a smaller company would have taken five minutes. You know, here it's taking five months. But you make that change and boom, you know, you've unlocked $200 million in revenue opportunity or whatever it might be. So the decisions, you know, changing, shifting that ship, so to speak, uh, it's a big ship. <laughs> and, you know, even a shift of two degrees to the left is going to be a big change for that company 
um, and could also just, you know, really, you know, can mean really good things or if the decision's wrong, you know, some potentially uh, bad ones. So you want to be pretty uh, covered on all different bases and kind of go through the right process there. So resetting expectations and just, you know, knowing that that is there for a reason, frankly, um, is just something that's that's good to go into any sort of larger company with, I would say. Okay, and I think I and I can see that that whole difference in a way from five minutes to five months must not have been easy. But I think like the fact that you had to completely kind of just look at it from a different point of view would have been like something that I think we can all learn from, and not just companies, but in everything that we do in a sense. That whole resetting your expectation thing I think is very important. And going from a startup where you work with many different clients, you meet many different people and it on I think project basis or just having that kind of like difference of opinions and difference of um uh, solutions that you need to provide to now being integrated into one company where there's one team that you'd have to meet on a day-to-day -day basis. There's one client in the, in essence in a way that you work with. How was that different in a way from your role, from your point of view? Uh, was it something you preferred to just deal with like one client for many months instead of just having like many to think about? Or was it something that um, came with its own challenges and its own kind of like different ideas that you had to uh, implement in a way? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's, I would say that there was, there was one client at the end of the day and that client was Nike. But there are so many different stakeholders. You know, there was the night, there was the marketing team, the Nike Direct team, the e-commerce team, the privacy team, the legal team, the engineering team, um, the security team. Like there are so many different stakeholders within Nike, just given that it's such a large company. Um, and so, in one sense, it wasn't that different because just working with a lot of different stakeholders and having to kind of go through the same processes to you know get stuff done, you know, get an idea sold to them. Um, in a sense, because you know now you're not selling necessarily the software for revenue, but you are selling your idea and your strategy and trying to implement it and deploy it in kind of the way that um, the integration was planned for, uh, and just making sure that folks are prioritizing that and everyone's on the same page, and you know it's kind of working its way and it working its way as expected. Um, that's one piece of it. So that wasn't too different. What was different, and what I think was it's there's pros and cons to it but what was different was the idea that now but we were part of nike now that our software and our technology was within a larger ecosystem and only within that larger ecosystem uh, that we we're able to able to really get deep with it um there was not the urgency for instance as you get to start up to you know sell more deals raise more capital you know do all this sort of stuff that can be you know that's very necessary but can also be very distracting from like a pure product development standpoint. You know, at Nike, we kind of had all the time and all the resources we need to build up the product and have our vision and build out our vision any way we wanted. So, you know, one part of my job there was to really lay, lay one part of my job there was to really lay the groundwork for that. Um, and that involved a lot of like, you know, short, medium and long-term planning, headcount planning, you know, who do we who do we need to hire? What how many data scientists, how many front end engineers, how many back-end engineers, how many machine learning engineers, you know, and kind of have, you know, be able to just really um, double down on our product vision, which is very exciting. It's just something, you know, you can think of like from a, from a startup perspective, you have your product vision, you go out and you sell it to, you know, 10, 20 companies, and it takes time to like eventually evolve it just because that there's a lot of selling that needs to do. And there's a lot of other things that need to do. But here, when you're in within, when you're within one specific uh, organization, 
you can really focus in and kind of accelerate your roadmap, so to speak, because you have a lot of resources, you have the buy-in, um, you have a captive audience, uh, and you're just able to, to do that. So I think that was really good in one sense um, in that, you know, you're able to really double down on it. Um, I said there's pros and cons. I think the con is that uh, it's, <laughs> at least for me, it was a lot more fun that kind of the chaotic nature of you know, the startup world where you're selling to a lot of people, you're raising capital, um, you're kind of battling against time in some respects, um, you know, and so that that appeals to me personally, but I can, you know, there's there's other folks that can really kind of double down on the, the product side of it and just kind of stay, you know, focused on that piece. Okay, okay. And I and I definitely see kind of like both of that. On one side, you have now an audience that is committed to seeing that product being developed with you, seeing the technology grow with you. But then on the other side, you kind of like have that chaos of like trying new things on the dot and kind of like every client is different in a sense. So yeah. I think in the end, it worked out for you. The integration was successful. It was amazing. And then today now you're back to a slightly more chaotic role, I'd say, um, seeing startups grow and developing them and uh, scaling them as well. How did you end up at Foundry.ai? Like, was this again something in that uh, grand plan that you had? <laughs> or was it again something that had a touch of serendipity to it? Definitely more a touch of serendipity. So I left Nike. Um, I took some time off just because it's been <laughs> it was a very busy time. Um, so I needed some time off. Uh, and then one of the founders of APT um, from way back when, uh, he reached out and was saying, look, he started a new uh, venture studio. Um, they just raised about $100 million in capital. Uh, and they were looking for folks that were interested uh, in joining um, and, and just kind of, you know, that were folks that were kind of entrepreneurs at heart, um, were eager to start their own uh, sort of ideas, start their own companies, um, and lead them at the end of the day. And for me, you know, what's always attracted me to any sort of role is responsibility, increasing ownership and increasing responsibility. And, you know, the idea of talking with, um, this is Jim Manzi, who founded APT, and we were talking, and he, you know, kind of talked about his approach to, to artificial intelligence and, you know, what we coin as practical AI or practical, practical artificial intelligence. And he was saying, you know, they really have this kind of approach that is about creating business value through the application of AI. And it's, it's usually these, uh, you know, frankly, these unsexy parts of AI, where it's a lot of, you know, automation, machine learning on decisions that get made, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of times a day at firms, uh, as opposed to these more grandiose visions of like, you know, uh, self-driving cars or you know, things like Building that. robots and all of that. So. Exactly. exactly. So, um, Jim and I talked for a while uh, and it just seemed like a good fit because they were looking for somebody to come in and essentially work with a launch partner uh, at Foundry to create a new company, um, to essentially create a new technology and then formulate a company around it. And, you know, I figured it's, it's a place that sounded very interesting. I liked working with, you know, I've worked with Jim in the past at APT. Uh, you know, I know him uh, personally. So it was just, it was an easy decision to make because, you know, I, he was, a smart guy, successful guy. I respected him and it just seemed like a good opportunity to do it. And, you know, it was just something that I had to jump at. So, you know, joined Foundry uh, a little over two years ago and have kind of, you know, made that, made that leap and kind of got back to the startup world where frankly, it's just, to me personally, it's a lot more exciting and interesting because again, that day-to-day -day chaos is, it seems like it's something I just can't live without. Okay. And you started in this role, 
uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, around the time just before the pandemic in a way. So um, it makes, I think, a chaotic um, role of being a startup founder even more chaotic just because that's what the pandemic did for all of us in a way. So how is kind of like navigating the pandemic uh, which we are now hopefully step like much more better. We're all stepping out of it in a sense. But at that point of time, when it was just beginning and there was a lot of uncertainty, how is it from your point of view as someone who's really on the ground with the startup in a way? Well, yeah, if you remember, I was just saying you have to be flexible and you have to be decisive. Um, and that's exactly what we needed. You know, that's exactly what we did. So interestingly enough, when I joined Foundry, um, I worked on a, in a number of different sort of projects and companies. Um, and I started running one of the companies called Supplier. And Supplier was focused, uh, you know, it was a procurement, it's a procurement optimization company. And our core client base was uh, hospitality firms and restaurants. Um, and, you know, at the start of the pandemic, those were two of the biggest hit industries. And, you know, we had two big deals going with, you know, hospitality, one hospitality firm and one restaurant that essentially just said, just went quiet. You know, we, are not focused on this right now. We have to get through, you know, labor staffing, um, you know, labor shortage, labor, you know, staffing, uh, restaurant closures, things like that. So, the, and we continued to try to sell supplier during that time. It was not getting a lot of market traction. I mean, the pandemic early on, particularly, was just it was so chaotic. Nobody really knew what was happening. Um, one one uh, industry that was pretty successful though during this pandemic times. Um, were cable and telecom operators. You know, everybody's working from home. Everybody needs high-speed internet. Um, these folks are growing quite a bit, and they had a lot of capital um, from private investors as well as the government in, term, in the form of subsidies and things like that. And there was another entity that was being formed at Foundry called Actify uh, that was selling to cable and telecom operators, at least primarily at that time. And so, you know, in that in that vein of being you know remaining flexible and make being decisive we decided to just you know put a pause on supplier for the time being um you know pivot to actify where we were getting more traction so i took over that company um and have been leading that since and so you know continuing to kind of you know lead grow and scale everything on that end um as it relates to uh you know, development strategy sales marketing client services etc because um, you know that's we're essentially doubling down on our strengths, and you know so far it's been going great. We've been you know signing a lot of pilots, signing a lot of rollouts, growing the company quite a bit from when uh, when we first started it. Okay, and again, I've got like I know earlier I asked about what was your biggest lesson in a sense, uh, being in that startup space, being someone new in a sense. But now, kind of like on the other side of it, like you've you've got a lot more experience in a sense in this whole startup AI tech industries, which are all very hard industries to master in a way. But what do you see like as someone who now comes in as a founding partner with these? startups and all, what do you think see is one thing that startup founders don't often look at, like that they don't expect in a sense? Well, I think, so it's interesting. I mean, I guess it just comes down to, you know, a startup, let's just put it this way. You don't have to build the next Facebook to be a successful startup entrepreneur. <laughs> um, there are many, many businesses, small, medium, large, um, and, you know, that are, and super large and like a like a Facebook um, where you know folks are successful in, in all the different things that they do and actually make a really material impact um, in their lives and their communities lives and, and things like that and so you know I think that it's always wise to think big you know it, I think there's 
there's a lot of evidence, um, empirical as well as just anecdotal, that you know it takes as much effort to build a, a big company as it takes to build a small company. Um, so it's always good to think big, but you know, by no means if your startup is you know 20 employees and you know you have you know you're, you're generating a lot of value for your clients and you know doing a lot of good things in, in your community and you know just doing the right sort of things and you know changing people's lives. By no means should you know anyone feel that. You know, you need to get to the size of Facebook to be accomplished or successful. Um, I think that's one thing that a lot of startup entrepreneurs should, you know, should frankly just, you know, keep in the back of their minds that, you know, starting a new company is hard um, and growing a company is really hard. And, you know, there's a lot of different successes and wins that come along the way. And, you know, it can be small, it can be big. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, it, it's really truly something that you should, you know, you should value and you should really latch on to because it, it's something unique that you've tried and we're able to kind of go through the ups and downs and make it happen so um that would be my that, that's kind of one piece of you know call it advice or wisdom or whatever it might be that you know you don't have to be the next facebook you don't have to be the next um you know google or apple there's a lot of different avenues and paths to success in the startup land yep and also i think it kind of like ties into the earlier thing that you mentioned about there's things like even AI in a sense, there's always the glamorous parts of it, but there's also a lot of other space that maybe people don't always see in a sense. So you may not be coming up with the next self-driving car, but you may still have something functional that actually can help people and actually improve their business, bring value to the clients and all of that. So again, now from the business point of view, again, in a way, um, what is your advice for all of the maybe Penn students out there, since you're from Penn as well, who are coming up with an idea and they aren't sure whether this idea is going to work or they may have many ideas or they may be kind of like searching what they should do. But if someone has an idea, how do they know whether this idea is workable? How do they know whether this idea is feasible and whether this could actually be something like the next big thing? In a way? So I think have a lot of, <laughs> I think talk to a lot of people, particularly <laughs> smart people, um, you know, people that they respect, mentors, professors, um, whomever it might be. I mean, talking, discussing this idea with folks who you know, have been there, have done it, you might have some unique insight is always a good starting place, I would say. Um, the second point is just just do it. Uh, you know, it's, I guess, take, take a word from Nike's uh, motto. You know, it, it, it does not take a lot. It, it takes effort, but it's it's much less effort than it used to be to start a company, you know, whether it's creating a website, um, if it's a software firm using a cloud services provider like, you know, Google or, or Amazon to, to get this going, um, you know, just invest the time, you know, invest some time up front and see if it's getting traction. You know, I'm a big fan of, you know, what we had at APT, which is a test and learn software. Just try it out. If it's working, that's great. If it's not, see what you might need to tweak to see how to make it better, um, get market feedback. I mean, the best way of figuring out if something is going to be successful just by doing it, learning from the market and iterating from there. So um, I'd say, you know, do some upfront research. Don't go into analysis paralysis because you can talk to, you know, you can talk to hundreds of people and get a hundred different opinions um, in terms of what, what to do. But, you know, talk to a few folks that, you know, you very much value and uh, respect, um, make that decision. And I think just, just try it out because there's, there's a, the barriers are becoming lower and lower. And I think it's just that much easier these days to to start something new and pretend, you know, maybe you are on the next Facebook and you just don't know it. 
Okay. And I think that's very good advice for all of this listening to your session here today. And thank you so much. I'd say like you have been an absolute joy to talk to and like your story of like the different things that you've done connect so so much with the touch of serendipity that I think it gives us all a lot of hope that if we work hard, if we kind of like focus on the things that we're doing, we will kind of like grow in the career that we want away. So final question, final, final question. I'm so, so sorry. But rewinding, if you could go back in time and like to you who was studying, I think was it life science management back then in uh, Penn in a way, and who may have just been newly introduced to the business world in a way. What would you say to you back then? Or oh, someone in that position who doesn't even know what field or industry is? Like now with all of the years of experience, knowing that you are good at this, that this is the field for you. But for someone who may not be convinced yet, what would you say to them? I would say get involved in as many different activities or organizations as possible to meet as many people as possible. You know, as I've seen through my career, even in this short time, I would say a lot of it was, you know, by happenstance and just serendipitous, as we've been saying. And, you know, the more folks you talk to, the more organizations you're a part of, uh, the more different activities you're doing. You just meet a lot of folks from different walks of life and you never know how it's going to you know, end up at the end of the day. So, you know, my advice would just be just get involved, um, you know, start doing things that interest you, um, start doing things that might interest you that you're not currently doing. Um, you know, it's, it's always beneficial, I think, to kind of grow your network and come at it, you know, not, I, I don't, I really don't like the word networking, because I think uh, that implies some sort of disingenuine uh, aspect to it. But, you know, really come at it with a, a kind of a approach to just like learning more, just be curious, um, and really, you know, expand, uh, expand your social network in the sense through that way. All right. Well, thank you so much. And like, this has been an amazing session. And I really do hope that our audience has been enjoying this and taking notes and taking the lessons that they can as well, as much as I have been in this uh, short hour with you. So thank you once again. Hopefully you enjoyed our chat today and enjoyed speaking back to us at the Penn community too. Yeah, it was great, Harsh. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. And with that, I think we shall draw interview today to a close. So for all of you watching, this has been Changing Reality on WQHS Radio. Thank you guys for joining us and see you guys again next Thursday at 10 p.m. ET. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.